everyone. Welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. And on today's episode, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of Earth Day with a look at the increasing focus on our environment in the 70s, why there just are not that many good Earth Day songs, and how 70s singers and songwriters were inspired to write about the world around them. But first, a very big thank you to everyone who has helped keep this show doing its thing with your nice ratings and reviews. If you like the show, hit pause, go tap on that fifth star, and come back. It truly does help other people find the show. Also, a reminder that show notes and my source list for every episode is on the internet at ftr70.com. In late January and early February in 1969, 3.2 million gallons of Union Oil Company oil spilled from a platform about five and a half miles off the coast of one of the most beautiful areas in the United States, Santa Barbara, California. It was not the worst of oil spill disasters that the United States had ever seen, But I think the fact that so much beauty was marred by this thick, black, gunky oil was alarming to many people. Senator Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin saw the effects of the disaster firsthand, and he was inspired to set aside a day to encourage Americans to learn more about the need to preserve and protect the environment. Nelson, a Democrat, reached across the political aisle, imagine that, to Pete McCloskey, a Republican senator from California who was also interested in environmental conservation. Now, keep in mind that this was also the era of widespread anti-war protests on college campuses across the country. So it was a good time to tap into the energy and the willingness of young baby boomers to organize. Teach-ins and rallies and other events were held across the country. Here is some of the news report from the first Earth Day April 22nd, 1970, on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. The hoopla of Earth Day is over. The problems remain. Only time will tell if these demonstrations accomplished anything. But let's summarize the points that were brought home today to a lot of people who have missed the point so far. For instance, the militants who see all this as an establishment trick to divert attention from what to them are more urgent concerns like civil rights or like Vietnam. They seem to have missed the point that there are no civil rights or peace in a lifeless world. For instance, the politicians who see this as a safe crusade, they seem to have missed the point that it will involve treading on more special interests than ever in our history. For the first time, they may even have to come out against motherhood. For instance, those in industry who see the crisis as only the hysterical creation of do-gooders, they've missed the point. If they haven't heard the unanimous voice of the scientists warning that halfway measures and business as usual cannot possibly pull us back from the edge of the precipice. For instance, the too silent majority. The greatest disappointment today was the degree of non-participation across the country and especially the absence of adults. And the young people who did participate were in a skylark mood, which contrasted rudely with the messages of apocalypse. Those who ignored Earth Day, well, that's one thing. Those who ignore the crisis of our planet, that's quite another. 
The indifferent have missed the point that to clean up the air and earth and water in the few years science says is left to us means personal involvement and may mean personal sacrifice, the likes of which Americans have never been asked to make in time of peace. The sense of today's teaching was that America must undertake a revolution in its way of life. Affluent America will, we were told, almost certainly have to scale down its standards of living, give up having as many cars, as many children, as many cans, as many conveniences, as much conspicuous consumption. Someday, we heard today, the world will be a better place if it listens and acts. But in the meantime, perhaps for a generation or more, it will be frighteningly costly to each of us to clean up the mess each of us has made. But the cost of not doing so is more frightening. That's what today's message really means. And those who marched today, and those who slept, and those who scorned are in this thing together. What is at stake and what is in question? is survival. This is Water Crime Guide. Good night. Keep in mind that this was not an era when news anchors offered up their opinions very much. If they did, it was explicitly mentioned that it was their opinion. Although Walter Cronkite did famously uh, offer his opinion about Vietnam after he visited there and witnessed the effects of the Tet Offensive in 1968. That was when he said that the United States was mired in stalemate, and he didn't think that the United States could win the war. That was a really big deal for Walter Cronkite to say something like that. So if Walter Cronkite, considered by many to be the most trusted man in America in 1970, goes on the air and tells America that they need to start cutting back on their conspicuous consumption— he is going to get the attention of a lot of people by saying something like that. The part that I did not play uh, was Cronkite kind of taking to task the younger generation for their protests against Nixon at some of these rallies. It does seem that protesting Nixon on Earth Day might have been a bit misguided. There are a lot of reasons that you might choose to criticize Richard Nixon but his handling of environmental causes, that's not, the, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not convinced. In fact, what if I told you that Richard Nixon was one of the most environmentally conscious, conscious presidents in American history? Nixon went green? Yeah, he did. He did not like environmentalists. He didn't like them. But he did recognize the importance of clean air and clean, clean water. He also uh, took office at a time when America kind of started to care about the environment. According to the Science History Institute, in 1965, only about a third of Americans surveyed agreed that air and water and pollution were serious problems where they lived. By 1967, the figures passed 50%, and in 1970, they reached roughly 70%. Now, backing it up just a little bit, by the time that President Lyndon Johnson left office in January 1969, he had signed over 300 pieces of environmental legislation worth over $12 billion in federal funding. That is more environmental laws that had been signed in total over the previous 187 years. These laws, for the first time, gave the government some authority over standards for air and water pollution, vehicle emissions, and he added 50 
national parks. His wife, Lady Bird, was also a very strong supporter of environmental causes. Uh, Her cause was beautification, a term that she really did not like, uh, but she accepted it because it helped her get some of the legislation that she worked for, like historic preservation. A special shout out to Lady Bird Johnson for helping shut down plans to dam the Grand Canyon. Who in the hell thought that that was a good plan? Okay, consider that it was just in 1960 that President Dwight Eisenhower vetoed a water pollution act because he didn't see it as a federal government issue. There was much momentum to take environmental problems more seriously in the mid to late 60s, and Richard Nixon picked up the ball and he ran with it. He didn't just sign environmental acts. He championed them, including the granddaddy of them all, the act that created the Environmental Protection Agency, and in 1971, he signed the bill that created Earth Week, which celebrated the first anniversary of Earth Day. What is the first song that comes to mind when you think environment, or using today's language, sustainability? For me, it's this one. Mercy Me from Marvin Gaye from the classic 1971 album, What's Going On? The actual title of the song is Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology. Barry Gordy, the president and founder of Motown Records, A, was not too fond of protest music being made under the Motown label, and B, did not even know what ecology meant until someone explained it to him. The single sold a million copies, And in 2002, the song was added to the Grammy Hall of Fame. So if you love that song, which I do, you are definitely not alone. Here's what music critic Jeffrey Himes wrote about that song in 2018. The music, Gay's piano and voice backed by strings, a sax solo and a haunting echo is powerful, but the lyrics are no more than childish slogans. Mercy, mercy me, Gay sings, Things ain't what they used to be. Where did all the blue skies go? Poison is the wind that blows from the north and the south and east. These sentiments are admirable. Nature good, pollution bad, but they add nothing to our understanding. 
the title of the article is, It's Hard to Write a Good Song About the Environment. I saw that title and I thought, yes, it must be because there are not very many good songs about the environment. Tell me more, Jeffrey Himes. It's not that songwriters have traditionally shied away from controversial topics, which environmental issues can be, because it's nearly impossible to separate environment from politics. So I didn't think it could be that. Himes made a really good point. Environmental issues are so pervasive and so gradual that it can be hard to write a personal song about it. A single incident can be dismissed as an anomaly. It's the accumulation of such diffuse incidents that make climate change so dangerous. Slow-moving, impersonal phenomena such as this are a difficult challenge not only for political organizers, but also for songwriters. Okay, so what about this one, which may be even more well-known than Mercy, Mercy Me? Joni Mitchell wrote Big Yellow Taxi after a visit to Hawaii in 1969, and the song was released in 1970 on her Ladies of the Canyon album. Not a huge radio hit, but it's been covered about 199 times. Himes offers a couple of interesting observations about Big Yellow Taxi. One, Joni relies on humor to get its point across. Not only have developers paved paradise and put up a parking lot, they have also taken all the trees and put them in a tree museum where they charge the people a dollar and a half to see them. There's no better antidote for sanctimony and speechifying than a good joke. Two, she makes it personal. Didn't all, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? Is there a personal experience that's similar to that? Yes, it's her relationship with a lover, a romance that fell apart bit by bit till one night he got in a big yellow taxi and left forever. The same thing, she implies, might happen to the world we know. Aha! So armed with these ideas... I took a broader look at the 70s songs about the environment, and not just the environment, but about the world around us, the space we occupy, and the air we breathe. To write about a place is to celebrate its existence. Perhaps it's a celebration of here and now, or a reminiscence about the past, or a wish for the future. These are all ways to write about our Earth. So this got me thinking about After the Gold Rush by Neil Young. What inspired him to write this? Look at Mother Nature on the 
Mother Nature on the Run in the 1970s. The title track to the After the Gold Rush album released in 1970, which is another one of those albums that seemed to confuse and baffle some critics at the time, but it now is rightly considered a classic. Neil Young wrote that song while he was living in Topanga Canyon in Los Angeles, and he was going through some struggles with writer's block. Dean Stockwell, who you might recall from the early 90s TV show Quantum Leap, gave him a screenplay about some kind of uh, end of the world movie. And leg- legend has it that Young wrote the album in three weeks. And who knows what happened to the screenplay? That's long gone. But Neil Young said, After the Gold Rush is an environmental song. When I look out the window, the first thing that comes to my mind is the way this place looked a hundred years ago, referring to Topanga Canyon there, of course. And it's not an overly environmental song, but it's personal and it's about place. When I say place, that is kind of my teacher talk. I believe in the importance of learning in place. Usually when I say that, I mean about learning history in the place where it happened. I think with music, it is similar. The songwriter is taking us to that place. And in this case, helping us understand the importance of preserving it. It is the celebration of place, and I think that personal experience with environment that Jeffrey Himes wrote about that led to John Denver writing Rocky Mountain High. Now, I know, I know everyone thinks it's about weed, and maybe that is part of it. But in September 1985, John Denver testified at a Senate Commerce Committee hearing on record labeling, There was much consternation among adults about rock music lyrics. Uh, This was led by Al Gore's wife, Tipper. Musicians viewed this attempt to label records with parental warnings, which, by the way, did end up happening. They viewed that as censorship. They were especially worried, though, about their music being banned from the radio. This is what John Denver said about Rocky Mountain High. My song, Rocky Mountain High, was banned from many radio stations as a drug-related song. This was obviously done by people who had never seen or been to the Rocky Mountains and also had never experienced the elation, the celebration of life, or the joy in living that one feels when he observes something as wondrous as the precedes meteor shower on a moonless and cloudless night when there are so many stars that you have a shadow from the starlight and you're out camping with your friends, 
your best friends and introducing them to one of nature's most spectacular light shows for the very first time. He was born in the summer of his 27th year Coming home to a place he'd never been before He left yesterday behind him You might say he was born again You might say he found the key for every door When he first came to the mountains His life was far away On the road hanging by a song But the string's already broken And he doesn't really care it don't last too long With the Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain and fire in the sky The shadow from the starlight Is softer than a lullaby Rocky Mountain High Don't worry, I had it on mute while I was singing along to that one. Um, Released on October 30, 1972, and an ever-present radio staple in cars, in car stereos in the 1970s. I mean, it seemed like every time we got in the car, that song was on. Uh, Rocky Mountain High is one of Colorado's state songs. Made it to number nine on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1972. Dewey Bunnell, former Air Force kid and member of the band America, wrote this about the song Ventura Highway. This is from the liner notes of the box set Highway. It reminds me of the time I lived in Omaha as a kid and how we'd walk through the cornfields and chew on pieces of grass. There were cold winters, and I had images of going to California. So I think in the song I'm talking to myself, frankly, how long are you going to stay here, Joe? I remember vividly having this mental picture of the stretch of the coastline traveling with my family when I was younger. Venture a highway itself, there is no such beast. What I was really trying to depict was the Pacific Coast Highway, Highway 1, which goes up to the town of Ventura. And it is that reminiscence that gave us this. Walking down the road Tell me how long you gonna stay here, Joe Some people say This town don't look good in snow You don't care, I know Venture a highway Stronger than moonshine 
kid singing along to that song did you ever wonder what alligator lizards were i did uh now you know they're clouds ventura highway from the 1972 album homecoming and a top 10 hit in 1972 don henley wrote a much darker song about his observations about california in the song the last resort which is on the eagles classic album hotel california it was recorded in 1976 and Henley called it, along with the title track, a bicentennial message for America. Henley said that California is just a microcosm of the country and that the 70s seemed to be unusually decadent with a lot of escapism and apathy. He hoped that the last resort would spur some people on to take a look at what was happening to the land around them and to do something about it. Don Henley's lyrics as the song comes to a close. Who will provide the grand design? What is yours and what is mine? Because there is no more new frontier. We have got to make it here. We satisfy our endless needs and justify our bloody deeds in the name of destiny and in the name of God. Uh, most history teachers out there and history students will recognize that last bit as a reference to manifest destiny. Music writer Dave Thompson called The Last Resort an updating of Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi, but more weary and despairing. Glenn Fry, Henley's bandmate, said many years later that Don really found himself as a lyricist on that song, really kind of outdid himself. We're constantly screwing up paradise, and that was really the point of the song, and that at some point there is going to be no more new frontiers. In episode 12 of this very podcast, 
I discussed the 40th anniversary of the No Nukes concert, which raised awareness about one of the biggest threats to our environment, nuclear waste. Please go check out that episode for more on uh, the No Nukes concert. The songs at No Nukes, though, were not specifically about the environment. They were hits played by some of Rock's greatest performers to raise money and to raise awareness. The leak of the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania on March 28, 1979, was a major impetus for that concert. It was also uh, mentioned in London Calling, written by Mick Jones and Joe Strummer of The Clash. Now, this song is about a lot of places in the world in 1979 and the general chaos that seemed to be engulfing the planet. Uh, The Three Mile Island incident, yes, but also the Iran hostage crisis, an oil spill in Mexico. The lyrics say, the ice age is coming, the sun is zooming in, meltdown expected, the wheat is growing thin, engines stop running, but I have no fear because London is drowning and I live by the river. Here's The Clash, London Calling from 1979. The Clash claimed to write modern folk songs. I get that. Uh, They are writing about nuclear meltdowns and a planet in peril and their punk rock style. I mean, this song is a warning. Have you listened to the song all the way to the end lately? This is the end of the song. It's an SOS message. And it's the Clash. They're not going to give us uh, gentle strumming on the acoustic guitar like John Denver. Rolling Stone said of the whole album that it was a series of insistent messages sent to the scattered armies of the night, proffering warnings and comfort, good cheer, and exhortations to keep moving. London Calling, the album, was released at the end of 1979 in the UK, early in 1980 in the US, and is number eight on Rolling Stone Magazine's list of top 500 albums of all time, just one of many, many, many on a laundry list of accolades for that album. Rolling Stone also ranked the song London Calling as number 15 on its top 500 singles of all time. That song was never released as a single in the United States. Uh, Train in Vain was released instead, which essentially introduced The Clash to America. So how do you celebrate the 50th anniversary of Earth Day in the midst of a global pandemic? As I record this, that is what the world is currently facing. For the first time, Earth Day 
which is celebrated in over 190 countries, is going to be a strictly digital event. And as many people are hunkering down and staying safe at home, I hope, I can't think of a better time to consider the messages that the songwriters offered to us in the 70s. Consider the places that inspire you, the places that are meaningful to you, and think about what you can do to keep them that way. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, tell somebody. Share an episode or give it a reading on your favorite podcast app. Follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. Bye for now, everyone. Stay safe.